Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is a Scandinavian perspective on industrial operator independence. Our guest is Johan Starr, professor and chair of production systems at Chalmers University in Sweden. In this conversation, we talk about how the field of human-centered automation has evolved, the contemporary notion of operator 4.0, Scandinavian worker independence, shop floor innovation at Volvo, factories of the future, modern production systems, robots and cobots in manufacturing. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Johan, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Tron. It's really nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. Fellow Nordic person. Fellow Nordic person. And I apologize for this very American greeting. Uh, you know, how are you? I actually, you know, as you know, I'm from the Nordic region. I, I actually mean it. <laughs> you know, it was a question. So I, I, I do wonder. <laughs> I'm actually fine. It, it's just ending the vacation. So I'm a little bit sad about that because everyone, but it's, it's very nice uh, time now because the rest of the world seems to be on vacation. So you can get a lot of work done. I concur. That is a wonderful time. Johan, I wanted to just briefly talk about you know, your exciting background. You are an engineer, a mechanical engineer from Sweden, and you had your initial degree from Linköping, which is a university town. Then you went on to do your PhD a while back in manufacturing automation, and this was at Chalmers, the uh, university in Sweden, and that's where you have done your career you know, in manufacturing research. You know, you're, I think, the first Scandinavian researcher, certainly stationed currently in Sweden, that we've had on, on the podcast. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, what is manufacturing like in Scandinavia? And what is it that fascinated you about this topic so that you have moved so deeply into it? Manufacturing in Sweden is the core, is the backbone of our country in a sense. We have statistically too many large manufacturing companies in Sweden as compared to, I mean, we're only 10 million people, but we have like 10, 12 pretty large companies in manufacturing area, in automotive, but also in, in electronics like Ericsson, we have Volvo, we have SKF, we have a lot of big companies. Sweden has an industrial structure that we have several small companies and, and a couple of large companies, not so many in the middle section there. This happened actually in the 1800s somewhere. There was a big growth of big companies and there was a lot of effort from the government to support this. And that has been continued. So the Swedish government has supported the growth of, of industry in Sweden. And therefore, we have a very strong industry and also a quite good uh, uh, digital growth and, and maturity. So the Scandinavian background to me when I was there, I remember that one of the things that at least Scandinavian researchers think is distinct about Scandinavia is worker independence. And it's something that I, I kind of wanted to just tease out a little bit in the beginning of, of this podcast. Am I wrong in this? Or is there something distinct about the relationship between, I guess, workers and managers? in Scandinavia particularly. You know, one speaks about the Scandinavian model. Can you outline a little bit what that means in manufacturing, if it still exists? And I'm, I, it's an open question. From my perspective, I mean, uh, Sweden usually ranks very high in innovation also when it comes to international rankings. And I think 
some of that has to do with the openness and, and the freedom of thinking in the sense, and not so hierarchical, more consensus-oriented ability to test and check and experiment at work without getting re- repercussions from top management. And it, it's much easier. I mean, in fact, if you are at one department in a, in a manufacturing company or in a university as such, and you want to collaborate with another colleague across the aisle, if you have a two hierarchical system, you need to go three levels up in order to be able to do that. But here, I think it, it's easier to just walk across the aisle mm-hmm. to have this collaboration and, and establish the cooperative environment. I think that that's that's part of the the reason. Also, that we are not so many. I mean, I think historically we needed to do a lot of things ourselves in in, in Sweden. We were a country up north with not so many people and, and we have harsh environments. And I think the same as Norway. I mean, you, you need to be self-sustainable in that sense. And that creates, a, a, I think, an environment of collaboration. We'll go more deeply into your research on manufacturing. And, you know, to what extent, you know, the question I asked here, you know, matters to that. But do you have a sense just at the outset here that this type of worker and operator sort of independence, relative independence, perhaps compared to other regions, is it changing at all, or is this kind of a feature that is a staple of Scandinavian culture and will be hard to change both for good and for bad? I think that that as everything, digitalization has sort of erased a lot of the cultural differences across the world in that sense. Because when I was a student, there was not this expressed digital environment, of course, and the information environment was less complex but I think now all the young people, as well as the, my, my mother does her banking, she's 90, she does her banking on her iPad. I mean, it, it's, it's very well spread. And I think that we are all moving towards a similar culture and the, the technology spread is so quick. So you cannot really have cultural differences in that sense. But I think that still the way that we are using this, and I think that the collaborative sense, I think that that is still there. The reason why Sweden is comparably innovative uh, still is that we still maintain our culture and, and, and use the technology to augment that capability. So, Johan, we'll talk about a bunch of your experiences because, you know, you obviously are based in Sweden. And because of Sweden's industrial situation, you know, you have some examples, you know, Volvo, world famous company, obviously, and also famous for its management practices and its factory practices. So we'll, we'll get into that. But you've also worked and you're advising, you know, entities such as the World Economic Forum and you're active on the European stage. I know with the European Institute of Technology, you know, your activity clearly goes way, way beyond these borders. But why don't we maybe start with some of these Scandinavian experiences and research projects that you've done, maybe with Volvo. What is it with Volvo that captured people's attention early on? And and what sort of experience and research have you done with Volvo? I think that that Volvo is is a very innovative, and Volvo is, is today is two types of companies. One is the car company, that has now gone fully electric, is introduced at the stock market, was recently owned by by Chinese company. And before that, it was owned by Ford. And before that, it was also public. But you also have the other part, which is the Volvo Volvo Group, which is uh, looking at trucks and and buses and and boats and things like that. And they they both share a high level of innovation uh, ambition, uh, innovation power, I think, 
using the experiences already from the 60s where you had a lot of freedom as an employee and also very good collaboration with the union in investments and in all the changes in company. I think that has been very beneficial and it's made them what is now Volvo Cars was very, very early, for example, with digital twins. They were experimenting with digital twins already in the 1990s. And we worked together with Volvo, but also with SKF, which is a roller bearing company here, to look at how we can support frontline workers and augment their capabilities. Because they're very skilled and they're very experienced. But sometimes you need to have sensor input and you need to have structures and rules and procedures and instructions. So we worked quite early with them, uh, already maybe in the 2009, 2010, to see how can we transform their work situation, provide them with work instructions through wearable devices. It was very popular at that time where the MIT was experimenting with uh, cyborgs and and, uh, people that were I think it was Thad Sterner, what was this is called? He was trying to put on a lot of computer equipment. They went through the security at the airport and it had some problems there. But that's not the, the case for the operators. But it was a little bit too early, I think. We tried to experiment with some of the maintenance people at, at Volvo Cars. And they were very interested in technology, but the use for it was a little bit obscure. And this was at the time when you had the mobile connectivity was 9,600 kilobits through a mobile phone and a modem. So the Wi-Fi more or less did not exist. And the equipment, the, the batteries weighed two kilos and the computer weighed one kilo. And then you had a headset that looked like you came from a deployment in a war zone. So it was a little bit, uh, looked a bit too spacey for them to be actually applicable. And then some 10 years later, we actually did a similar experiment with SKF, the roller bearing company, where we deployed the the first iPod Touch, I think they were called. That was right before the iPhone. I think it was an experiment by Steve Jobs to see how can we create what then became the iPhone screen. And we put that on the arms of the operators and try to see how can we give them an overview of a process situation. So they were constantly aware and they were were quite happy about this. And then we wanted to finish the experiment. The operators actually said that, well, we don't want to give the equipment back. And then we said, well, we need to have it back. Of course, you can use the software. So they brought their own phones and they downloaded the software and they're still using it actually, not on their own software, not on their own phones anymore, but they, they use this kind of software that we developed at that time together with them. So that was quite interesting. That's fascinating. Extrapolating from some of these early experiences up until now, I wanted to just ask you this from a research perspective, but also, I guess, from a management perspective. So you work on production systems. What is really the goal here? Or what has the objective been early on? You talked about these early MIT experiments. And I know, you know, control systems is a, is a very old area of research. And from what I understand, in the early days, the use cases weren't just factories. They were also, you know, on spacecraft and things. But to your point, especially earlier, we were working with very, very different technology interfaces. But now, you know, obviously, we are starting to roll out 5G 
which you know gives a whole other type of richness. But does it really matter how rich the technology interface is, or does it matter more what the objective is with these various types of augmentations that have been attempted, you know, really throughout the decades? Can you just give us a little sense of what researchers and yourself, what you were trying to augment and how that depends or doesn't it depend on kind of the quality of technology? First, we need to realize that manufacturing industry has always been a very, very early adopter. The first computers were used for war simulations and for making propellers for um, submarines to see how you can uh, program the uh, milling machines. So that was, this was in the 1950s. And the, the ro- industrial robots in the 60s and the 70s were also very early applications of uh, digitalization. Before anything else had computers, the manufacturing industry was using it. That's still the case. That might surprise some people. When they walk out into a shop floor, they see no computers around because all the computers are sort of built into the machines already. What is still missing is the link, perhaps, to the people. So they're still using the screens, and they are the ones, people are the key components of handling complex and unforeseeable situations. So you need to provide them, I think, to be really productive. You need to provide the frontline staff with the equipment for them to avoid and to foresee and to handle unforeseen situations, because that's what differs between the man and machine or a human and the machine. People are much more apt to solve complex situations that was not programmed before. That's the augmentation part here. How can we augment the human capabilities? And people talk about augmented reality. I mean, I don't think it's the reality that needs to be augmented. It's the human to be handling the reality that needs to be augmented. Johan, this is so fascinating because, when first of all, right, it's quite easy to dismiss manufacturing a little bit these days because to the kind of untrained eye, all the excitement is in the consumer space, right? Because that's where the new devices get released and that's, you know, obviously where all the attention is these days. Uh, you know, unless you obviously, you know, are in manufacturing. But can you kind of bring us back to those early days of computing when a lot of the use cases for computing were first explored with manufacturing? So you talked about MIT and back at MIT and at Stanford, all the way back to the 60s, they were exploring this, you know, new and fascinating field of even, you know, artificial intelligence. But before that, just, you know, regular sort of control system, electronic interfaces. What sort of fork in the road would you say happened there? Because clearly the fascination has been with digitalizing everything and software kind of won for 30 years. But in manufacturing, it's more complicated. You say people, so it's people, and then it's kind of these production systems that you research. That's not the same as the use case of, a, of an individual kind of with their phone and sort of talking to people. There, there are many, many more variables in play here. What is the real difference? Last year, actually, when, when the European Commission um, put forth the Industry 5.0, which is, should be the follower than by the Industry 4.0, And they base that on three main challenges. One is sustainability. One is resilience and the various kinds of resilience towards shock of of war, but also by climate, et cetera. And the third one is actually human-centeredness to see how can we really fully deploy the human capabilities in a society and also in industry, of course. 
I think what you're referring to is the two guys at Stanford in the 60s. One was John McCarthy. He was the the inventor of artificial intelligence uh, concept. His aim then was to replace human work. That was the the ambition with the artificial intelligence uh, because human work is not as productive as computing uh, work, uh, but it still has some drawbacks. But it's the same place Not so far away in another department at Stanford was a guy called Douglas Engelbert. And he was actually the the father of, he called it intelligence augmentation. So it was AI and IA at that time. But his ambition was to augment human work, to see how can you have this. And he was the one that invented hypertext and the mouse, and he put up the first hypermedia set in, in the Silicon Valley. So this was a, a guy that inspired companies like Apple and Xerox Park, those, those kind of institutions that had a huge bearing. There was a, a book by a, a research colleague at Oxford. He was comparing the overtime already from the, the, the early industrial days and, and forward. Technology that replaces people always have more complications when introduced and scaled than technology that augment people. If you look at the acceptance and the adoption of uh, the iPhone, that took months or weeks or whatever, seconds for some people, for me, for example. If you look at what happened in the industrial revolutions in the 1800s and the 1700s, you had a lot of uh, upheaval and already in the 1960s, starting to sound like a, a university professor. But in 96, in the US, there was a Senate uh, hearing about is automation taking the jobs from people or not? And the conclusion was that it's not. It is actually creating companies that then employ more people because of the productivity gains and the innovation gains. And you allow people to use the automation as augmentation, not only cognitive augmentation. We think a lot about augmentation as something that, that you do with your eyes and your, your brain. But robots are also augmenting people. It lifts heavy objects like cars or big containers, whatever. That's a kind of augmentation that maybe you don't consider when you look at it from an artificial or an augmented reality perspective. Well, so many things to pick up here, but the variety of meanings of augmentation are kind of astounding, aren't they? And you've written about this operator 4.0 several times. There's obviously cognitive augmentation, and then there's physical augmentation. Are there other types of augmentation that you can speak of? I really can't think of any. But those are the main ones. So it's either kind of your mentality or sort of your, your knowledge. So the, the work instruction parts goes to the skills-based, I guess, augmentation, which perhaps is an additional one. Or I'm just thinking if manufacturing wants to make progress in these things, it would perhaps make sense to really verify what workers at any moment actually themselves express that they need. And I guess that's mm. what I was fishing for a little bit here in this history of, of all of this, whether the technology developers at all moments really have a clear idea of what it is that the workers are saying themselves they're missing or that they obviously are missing. Because automation and augmentation, I mean, do you find them diametrically opposed or are they merely sort of complementary when it works well in an 
I mean, automation in traditionally has been the way to scale. And, and I mean, in the beginning, you want to see what the, the machine is doing, right? And then you really don't want to see it. You just want to want it to work. So it's, it's really helping you to scale up your work. And that sends automation, like collaborative robots, for example, which people are talking about robots as something that does, is uh, replacing uh, jobs. But if you look at it, it is a very small portion statistically. If, I mean, it, they're in, in Singapore, which is the highest user of robots, robots installed. It was 950 maybe robots per 10,000 employees. And the average in, in the Americas is 100 robots per 10,000 employees. And that's not really a lot. And so there is plenty of space for, for robots to be the, the tools for, for people. So if you don't treat them as something that will replace you, but something that will actually augment you, I think it would be much easier. What could happen, though? And I think that is maybe part of your, your question is that, well, these tools are becoming so complex so that you cannot use them unless you increase your skill. How do you do that? Because no company would end, would like to end up in a situation where the tools that you have bought and invested a lot of money in are too complex for your employees to use. That's a lost investment. It's like you ha- you, you're you building a, a big factory out in a very remote place and you don't have enough uh, electric power to run it. You don't want to end up in that situation. Like you express, I think that maybe what's missing and what's trending right now is that the upskilling of the workforce is becoming extremely important. And how do you do that, Johan? Because there's obviously, there's now an increased attention on upskilling, but that doesn't mean that everyone has the solution for it. And employers are always asking for other people to pay for it, for example, governments or the initiative of the worker, perhaps. It seems like Europe has taken this challenge you know, head on. Germany, at least, is recognized as a leader in workforce training. The U.S. is latecomer to the game from that perspective, but it typically shows up you know, in a big way. So something is going to happen here in the U.S. when it comes to workforce training. What is the approach? I mean, th- there seems to be two approaches to me. One is to simplify the technology so you do need less training. And the other would be, obviously, an enormous reskilling effort that either is organized, perhaps ideally, in the workplace itself, so it's not removed from the tasks, or some enormous sort of schooling effort that is highly efficient and perhaps online. What do you think are the winning approaches to reskilling the entire manufacturing workforce, perhaps continuously, right? Because it's not like you have to reskill them once, you have to reskill them every time. Well, I can only guess. I think that you need to do all of these, all of the above. One complicating factor is the demographics of, um, especially in Japan, of course, we know that from a long time that they have an aging population, but in Europe is now becoming the new Japan in that sense. We have a very big problem in terms of uh, aging populations, especially countries like Italy and uh, perhaps Germany, but also in, in um northern countries and we don't have perhaps there there's a lot of discussion on immigration right now but actually the the workforce would need a lot of immigration to be able to respond to the needs of of industry in the forthcoming situation i think that the the china is maybe 4 or 5 years behind europe and the us is maybe 10 12 years behind europe as well so 
that will happen. You know, the only non-affected regions right now is India and Africa. And uh, that means that the European and Chinese and US industries will have to compete with a rather young population in Africa and India. And so that, that will be a become over time, and but it, it's, a, it's a long time. So that, that means that it's not always on the political agenda. Things that take long time are, are usually not uh, the, the things that you speak about in when you have election times that we have in Sweden right now. It's mo- mostly on the, what, what's on the table. So, so I think that how to do that is, is really complex. I, we had some collaboration within the World Economic Forum. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic organization because it spans the whole globe. So that means that the information comes from different parts of the world and you can see different aspects of this. And a country that has done a lot of the, about this is, is Singapore. Very good experiments, very nice uh, projects, initiatives regarding upskilling. And Europe is is now launching a, an innovation program where, where they want to go deeper into deep tech to try to the the commissioner in um, for research and education in uh, in June launched uh, a, a big initiative around innovation, how that can be supported then by deep technology. So we'll see what comes out of that. It'll be very very interesting to see. In the new book from Wiley, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, serial startup founder Dr. Natan Linder and futurist podcaster Dr. Trond Arne Entheim deliver an urgent and incisive exploration of when, how, and why to augment your workforce with technology and how to do it in a way that scales, maintains innovation, and allows the organization to thrive. The key thing is to prioritize humans over machines. Here's what Klaus Schwab, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, says about the book. Augmented Lean is an important puzzle piece in the fourth industrial revolution. Find out more on www.augmentedlean.com and pick up the book in a bookstore near you. Speaking about the World Economic Forum for a minute, Johan, you have been part of this group project uh, called the Augmented Workforce Initiative. You told me when we spoke earlier that, in your opinion, this initiative couldn't have existed even just five years ago. Can you explain what you mean by that? Because augmentation, the way that you've been speaking about it now, is sort of a perspective that was nascent even in the early days of computing and manufacturing control systems, yet it seems to have sort of disappeared a little bit, at least from the top end of the political and research agenda. Yet here we are, and you said, you know, this initiative couldn't have existed five years ago. Can you explain what what you meant by that? That is a very, very nice initiative by the World Economic Forum, and it's run by the Forum and um, Cambridge University, who has a very, very good group on this and uh, some very nice people. And um, honored to be part of that group together with my colleagues from uh, Mexico, David Ramiro. You, you, you may know him as well. And I think that what they're looking at is the, the increased understanding. And that was actually one of the sessions as this World Economic Forum, um, you know, the, the DevOps days that were run this year. And it was actually part of those days as a theme about how to engage and how to support and to augment the workforce, which has never happened before in, in, the, in that level. So, so it's really, really high on the agenda. The, the forum has been running previous projects also on the future of work and how the demographic situation is affecting 
or how the, the skill situation is affecting the companies. They have come up with suggestions that more or less half the workforce needs to be upskilled within the next couple of years. And that's a huge undertaking. The novelty here is that the world's elite managers, I guess, who are represented at the World Economic Forum are increasingly aware that of the complexity of workforce issues generally, and then specifically of upskilling and maybe even upskilling in this very specific meaning of augmenting a worker, which I guess to my mind is a little bit different from just generally speaking about robotic automation and, you know, kind of hammering these efficiency points, right? But obviously a much more challenging debate because it's one thing to find a budget for an automation effort and introduce a lot of computers or introduce a lot of whatever technology, usually hardware, right? But what we're talking about here is a lot more challenging because you need to tailor it to these workers. And there's many workers, obviously, so it's a complicated phenomenon. How, how is that going? What, what would you say are some of the findings of the Augmented Workforce Initiative? I, I think that companies like Tulip, company Black & Decker and others uh, have, uh, show, have a lot of good use cases actually already which may have, may or may not before have been sort of labeled augmentation. It might have been labeled uh, operator support or dis- decision-making support or things like that and or upscaling. But I think that the findings are that there is a lot out there, but it, it's not emphasized as something that is really important for the company's survival in that sense. It wasn't so glorified before, right? A lot of the decision support system were viewed as lower level systems that were just kind of more like HR systems or just tinkering with necessary stuff that people had to know kind of a thing. And and so you're saying it's been elevated now, uh, yeah, as having a much more essential impact on the quality of work. It has a leveraging impact for the whole company, I would say. But that, that's also part of this Industry 4.0 approach. I mean, you have the hierarchical integration of um, companies where the CEO should be aware of what's on going on on the, uh, the shop floor and, and vice versa, as well as the horizontal integration where you have the, the companies up and down the supply chain and value chain knowing what's going on early. And that is really something that maybe stopped at mid-management level before, but now it needs to be sort of distributed out to the places where the complexity is higher, and that's that's the frontline uh, workers. Maybe, um, now I'm guessing, but I think that also the, the understanding that the investments done by this company in complex manufacturing equipment could be at risk if you don't have the right skills to use them, that is now penetrating, I think, a lot of the companies. In, in Europe, in, I think, 2019, something like that, we, there was almost 30 million people employed in the manufacturing industry. And if you look at the number of, if you say that half of these need to be upskilled somehow over a period of, of three years, and I actually made a mock calculation that the reskilling need for in-person months in Europe if we were to fulfill this, is 50 million person months. 50 million person months. Just the time for the people to to participate in these trainings. So that's a huge undertaking. And I think that that scares companies as well as, as governments because just imagine taking 50 million person months out of productivity or production, the production equation, right? But the alternative may, might be worse. If you lose your capability to use your equipment, that might even be worse. 
Well, these are daunting things. I guess that brings me to kind of the last section here and some thoughts from you on kind of the future outlook. When it comes to technology and these tools for human augmentation, uh, what are the timelines for, well, either making big improvements or, as you said, not losing competitiveness because of this skills crisis? What are we looking at here? Is this some imminent challenge and opportunity or is this going to play out over 25 years? I think that in, in 25 years, the demographic situations will have changed again. So, so I, I assume that they, they will look different. But right now, we have a problem with an aging population, and we have a, a lot of people going into retirement. A lot of knowledge will disappear unless we can uh, store it somehow. A lot of, of people will not go into industry. I mean, when I talk to colleagues, they say, well, we need to make manufacturing industry more sexy. It should be cleaner, should be nicer, because young people don't go to, to industry. But if I go to the healthcare section, they will say the same thing. Oh, we need to make it much better because people are not applying for these educations. <laughs> Where are people applying? What are the tech companies? No, that's the problem. They don't exist. They were never born. <laughs> right. Right. So the demographic bomb is that they are actually not there. So you cannot rely on employing young people because they are not existing in, in Europe and soon not in the US in that, to the extent that they were before. So therefore, you need to focus some on, on the older people. So you need to re-upskill not only the, the, the middle-aged people, but the, the people in the 50s and the, even the 60s. That adds to the complexity. In the next five to 10 years will be a lot of discussions on how to fill the place, the missing uh, places in industry to be remain competitive. Also, I think that you can, you can see the augmentation here as a fantastic tool together with the upskilling, because the upskilling, the new skills together with the augmented tools like collaborative robots, like cognitive support, like whatever you can put in an iPhone or in a whatever phone or, or tool or watch or whatever, you can add the, the capability to make decisions. And that's the augmentation you will see. And you will see a lot of digital twins to try to foresee problems. You will see a lot of transversal uh, technologies going from different high-tech industry into manufacturing industry to support, especially the frontline people and to enable their uh, innovation capabilities. Johan, you said earlier that the complexity is higher at the level of frontline workers. Did you mean that basically the complexity of frontline work of itself at an individual level is also underestimated? Or were you simply saying that because there's so many frontline workers and you know the various situations of various types of frontline workers is so different, that it's obviously a, an underappreciated management challenge? Or were you truly saying that frontline work in and of itself is either complicated or becoming more complex? If a task was not automated, it is inherently complex, so you couldn't automate it, right? Right. Because if you teach a robot or whatever to do a task, then it's not difficult. And you can foresee the results because then there was a lady called Lisaine Bainbridge. She put out the paradox of automation that the more you automate, the more dependent you become on the few people that are still there to handle the situations that are so complex that you could not foresee them. So, so you can always, everything that is programmed is programmed by a programmer and the programmer tried to foresee every foreseeable situation, right? 
and to that extent, the, the, the robots and the automation works. But if these situations go out of hand, if they're too complex and something happens, then there is no robot that can fix that. Unfortunately, AI is not there yet. Well, you said, unfortunately, AI is not there yet. But I would also conjecture that fortunately, AI is not there yet, because you're pointing to something missing, I think, in a lot of the AI debates. It's starting to come back now. And it was there in the 60s, because people realized that for lots of different reasons, to have a human oversight over robotic processes is actually a good thing. And, and you talked to me earlier about the experiments with imagining a trip to Mars and having to execute robotic actions on Mars in a control system environment where you actually had to foresee the action and kind of plan it was always a supervised type of situation. So the supervisor control concept, you know, has been there from the beginning of computing. If you were to sort of think of a future where AI actually does get more advanced, and a lot of people feel like that's imminent, maybe you and I don't, but in any case, let's imagine that it does become more advanced and, and becomes sort of a, a challenge. How do we maintain human control over those kinds of decisions? I mean, there are researchers that have imagined, you know, famously in superintelligence, right, Bostrom imagines this uh, paperclip factory that goes amok and starts to optimize for producing paperclips and everyone is suddenly producing, you know, the, and the machine then just reallocates resources to this enormously ridiculous task of producing only paperclips. It's a, it's a very memorable example, but a lot of people feel that AI could soon or at some point reach that level. How do we, as a failsafe, avoid that that becomes an issue? Or do you see it as such a far-fetched topic in, in manufacturing that it would be decades, if not centuries away? I, I think that AI uh, has been seasonal, if you, if you allow the expression. I mean, they, we, there's talk about these AI winters every now and then, and they tend to come every 10 or 15 years. And that matches the... Um, two page PhD lifetimes, uh, PhD development. I mean, the, the people tend to forget the problems and then they tend to use these uh, Gartner curves. If you look at the Gartner curve, you have the uh, expectation part, right? And I'm, I'm not being arrogant towards the AI research. I think that AI is fantastic, but it should be seen from my perspective as what it is, as an advanced form of automation that can be used as an augmentation tool. I think it was Kasparov that started to collaborate with a chess computer uh, maker or, or uh, developer, and, and they won every tournament because the, the combination of the human and the chess computer was astounding. And now I think there are even competitions where with chess computer plus chess experts comes with them. There was, uh, I think in the 1800s, there was a traveling uh, uh, exhibitionist that where, where they had a... The, the Mechanical Turk, I think it was called. It was a chess player that was competing then against the people in the audience. And actually inside this box, there was a small human that was making all the chess moves. And everyone was, they, they were beating all the chess champions. So there was a man inside this. I think that there is still a man inside a lot of the automation. A man or a woman. I, I wanted to just lastly end on a more positive note, because you told me earlier that you are more optimistic now than 10 years ago on behalf of your industry that you've researched for so many years. Why is that? I think that the technology, I mean, I'm a techno-optimist, and I think that we have also the the full scale, the full attention from the ICT industry on various industrial processes right now. 
it was a lot of, of service oriented and I think that that is playing out now in the platform wars with the different services but this, these different services are actually making a lot of good in the manufacturing and the the, the tougher industry so, so there's a bigger focus now on creating uh, um, co2 less steel and the, there's an exploration of, of different industries that are going across you look at the electrification of vehicles which is cutting across several sectors energy industry automotive industry electronics industry and i think that the problems in industry are becoming so complex so the ict attention is is on industry now more than perhaps on on consumers uh, as it were and i think that that's promising i, I see companies like ericsson uh, promoting 5g i see the the companies uh, doing uh, the, the amazon web services and such companies looking at services that are, are useful for industry and that's also augmenting the people's capability in that sense so that's why i'm so positive i see all the sensors coming i see all the computing power coming into the hands of the frontline uh, operators and i th- see also the the use for the, the upscaling and the scaling technologies that are emerging how do you do that? What they do in Matrix when the, the leading lady uh, downloads the uh, instructions for the helicopter or motorcycle or whatever it is. But how, how do you do that in real, real life? Uh, how do you prepare for something that's coming in the next few minutes? That is, is something that people are now looking at using technologies, augmenting technologies, digital twins and things like that in a completely different way than they were five years ago. Wow. So these are exciting moments for learning in manufacturing with uh, perhaps wide-ranging consequences if we succeed. Uh, Johan, I thank you so much for these reflections. You've spent a career investigating production systems and manufacturing and workers, and uh, these are very rich debates. And, and it seems like they're not over, Johan. So hopefully we'll have you back when something happens and we'll have you comment on some developments. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tron. Thank you for a very uh, interesting discussion. You always learn a lot by by, uh, being asked a lot of questions. So thank you so much for this learning experience. Thank you. You're very gracious. Thank you, Johan. You have just listened to another episode of the Augmented Podcast with host Tronarne Unheim. The topic was a Scandinavian perspective on industrial operator independence. Our guest was Johan Starr, professor and chair of production systems at Chalmers University of Sweden. In this conversation, we talked about how the field of human-centered automation has evolved. My takeaway is that human-centered automation is the only kind of automation that we should be thinking about. This is becoming more and more clear. Operators are fiercely independent and so should they be. This is the only way they can spot problems on the shop floor by combining human skills with automation in new ways, augmenting workers. It seems the workforce does not so much need engagement as they need enablement. Fix that and a lot can happen. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 84 on the evolution of lean with Professor Torbjörn Netland from ETH Zurich. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operation platform that connects people, machines, devices and systems 
in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring, and you can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially about where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.